when we were in a holding room prior to his speech at the wall, he told my husband, he had just come from Russia, and he told my husband that he thought he could do business with Gorbachev. And my husband asked him what made him think that, and he responded, I believe he believes in God. There were maybe only six other people in the room, but one of them was um, the president of Germany, Richard von Weizsäcker. I remember his head snapped. People thought, this man doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, uh, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Dream Team is back. Sam, welcome to the sixth episode of Global. Thank you, Stacy. Yes, for our listeners keeping score at home, this is the first time Stacy and I have been reunited since we recorded the pilot episode of Global on Russia. So if you're a first-time listener, Global is a monthly podcast where we dive into the past, present, and future of one country per episode. My name is Stacy Brown. My name is Sam Johannes, and today we are talking about Germany, or Deutschland, for those in the know. We've picked Germany because of its strategic role keeping Europe united, and because there is an important election coming up in September. But most importantly, we selected Germany because it is the 30th anniversary of a very important speech for us here at IRI. On June 12th, 1987, President Ronald Reagan gave the Tear Down This Wall speech in Berlin. The advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. (laughs) Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So we're assuming that most people have a pretty firm grasp of their World War I, World War II, and Cold War history. So on today's episode, we're going to focus on the modern history of Germany, starting with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending in present day. But before we get started, Sam, why don't you give the fast facts on Germany? Germany is located in Central Europe, right next to Poland. Uh, it's a population of 80 million folks, which is the largest country in the, in the European Union. Uh, the structure of Germany's government is a democratic federal parliamentary republic headed by Chancellor Angela Merkel. So that's sort of the dry stuff. 
but perhaps more interesting, the the longest word ever published, uh, to my knowledge, seventy nine letters, is is a German word. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's. Come on, Jane, you gotta try uh, to it. Let me. Okay, it's printed out here. Oh, goodness gracious, it's Donaudampfschiffhartselectrizitatenhauptbrett. <laughs> Birbswerk Bounterbeam Tengeselschaft You know? You know, that that old chestnut. I mean, that sounds right. If you want to know how to actually pronounce that. Donaudampf Schifffahrtselektrizitäten Hauptbetriebswerkbau Unterbeamtengesellschaft Some other interesting things about Germany. Um, obviously, a, a, a storied cultural history. Some of the greatest composers, Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, the uh, the supreme genius of the human race. Right after Stacy uh, comes, Sam. yeah, you know, uh, comes from from German speaking parts. It wasn't Germany at the time, but uh, Beethoven as well. Wagner, who invented uh, the the concert hall, something uh, most people don't know. My favorite uh, conductor of all time, Otto Klemperer, was from Silesia, which is actually Poland now. Now, but uh, don't tell them that uh, the first the first book ever printed by Johannes Gutenberg uh, on his famed printing press was printed in German uh, and and perhaps the the most surprising thing to me escape from prison is not a punishable offense in Germany it isn't no they'll 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 punish you if you like you know destroy property in in the process of of escaping from prison but the view is that it is a natural human desire to want to be free. So, you know, can you really hold that against somebody? I guess not. On a more serious note, Germany is one of the founding members of the European Union and uh, continues to play a, a strong leadership role in the Union, uh, both internally and with its engagement with, with the rest of the world. We have an incredible lineup of guests for this episode. We have Gail Burt, who is the chairwoman of the American Academy in Berlin, uh, an institute she co-founded in 1997 with the late Richard Holbrook. She's also the social secretary to uh, President Reagan uh, and was on stage during his Tear Down This Wall speech. And Ira's own Jan Sorocek, who is the director of the Europe Division here. An all-star cast. Let's get started. Gail, did you did you think in your lifetime that the the Berlin Wall was going to fall at any point prior prior to Reagan's speech? Well, even after Reagan's speech, um, Reagan's speech was considered by most people to be optimistic and um, and not realistic. Even after the speech, the conversation still in Germany was, "Will the wall come down in our lifetime?" The speech was in 1987. The wall came down in 1989. So two years after the speech, the wall came down. Um, and I will tell you that six months prior to the wall coming down, the conversation also was, will the wall come down in our lifetime? So I think it was uh, it was a shock how it came down and when it came down. And it was a shock, most of all, to the to the West Germans who were not psychologically prepared for the wall to come down. Um, you know, as, as, as I say, they, they thought Reagan's speech was a bold statement, but they did not take it seriously. Gail, 
What was it like to be on stage in front of the Brandenburg Gate on that day? The advance men, the White House advance men, had done a wonderful job of cutting a giant hole uh, into the backdrop of the stage, uh, and it was glassed in so you could see the wall right behind where we were seated. I can tell you that whether the sentence of Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall was going to be in or out of the speech was uh, debated up until we flew that morning from Bonn to Berlin and um, and on the plane to Berlin it was still being debated whether that sentence would stay in. And ultimately, the person that decided to keep it in was Ronald Reagan. Young, of of the four great powers that were interested at the time in uh, unification, it seemed, correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed the, the United States was more enthusiastic about reunification than than the other Western European powers. Could you could you maybe talk? About, well, well, Russia obviously had a NATO issue that they were worried about, which they still are today. Yes, indeed. Um, no, you're absolutely right, and it's 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 remarkable now when we look back on those days um, and we think about the position that Margaret Thatcher, for example, took uh, in the United Kingdom or uh, Francois Mitterrand took in France. Um, you know, there's some famous quotes, uh, you know, from the time that uh, probably everybody's familiar with, but I think they're they're useful to to remind us of what it was like. Um, you know. Maggie Thatcher allegedly uh, carried around a map of the um, the pre-1937 borders of Germany uh, in her handbag with her um, during the course of the wow. negotiations uh, to let people know, you know, what possibly could happen um, <laughs> if Germany were to be reunified. And, uh, you know, she she's quoted in 1989 as saying, you know, we beat the, German twi- the Germans twice and now they're back. <laughs> um, and uh, Andreotti, the, uh, the Italian prime minister at the time, um, uh, is responsible for the quote that is most most often attributed to Thatcher, but it, but it really goes back to him, and that is, you know, we love uh, we love so we love Germany so much, we want two of them and not just one, <laughs> <laughs> because there were real concerns. Um, again, it's difficult for us to to think about it now, but you know, the war hadn't been over for all that long, and uh, most of the generation of leadership that was doing the negotiation had personal experience, personal memory of World War II. And uh, so, you know, the perspective on Germany and, and how things could go wrong in Germany potentially, you know, uh, was dominant uh, in, in a number of the countries. Even the Dutch had reservations uh, about whether unification ought to go through. And, uh, and you rightly mentioned, you know, the, the, the uh, Moscow, you know, at the time um, concerned as well. But ultimately, you know, in those days, uh, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, um, didn't have the ability to, to really engage on it. And the people who drove it um, were in the White House. Um, you know, President Bush and um, Secretary Rice uh, and the, the negotiating team in the, uh, you know, in what we call the two plus four negotiations um, really were the ones who, who, who worked together with the, the British and the French to walk them through it and to ensure them that, uh, that the new Germany that was going to be recreated, um, you know, would be peaceful, would be fully integrated into NATO, um, and, uh, and would not become the threat that they feared that it might again. You, you mentioned the two plus four negotiations. Could you sort of, uh, unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. So, um, after the wall fell in uh, November of 1989, um, you know, it was, it was by no means clear how, uh, the two German states were going to, uh, relate to one another. The German Democratic Republic, obviously, you know, still a legitimate state recognized by, you know, the, the vast majority of the countries in the world, including the United States. Um, and uh, and the FRG, uh, down under the leadership of uh, Chancellor Kohl, 
um, you know, were just beginning the dance, trying to figure out where they were going to go next. And I think it's 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 all down to Chancellor Cole, uh, who recognized very early on that the the GDR, the DDR, as it was called in the German acronym, um, was not going to survive. Um, you know, the with without the backing of the Soviet Union, with the the Iron Curtain falling, with um, with uh, Poland and the Czech Republic, or then Czechoslovakia uh, and Hungary evolving toward democracy, that the you know the the DDR as it was constituted was simply not going to be viable. And many people uh, in West Germany, West Germany, the FRG in those days, um, didn't necessarily support full integration, full reunification. Um, but Cole saw politically. Economically, first and foremost, that that the two were going to have to be put together if if um, if the rebuilding that was going to be necessary in the East, you know, to to to, to undo the effects of communism, uh, was going to be undertaken. But also politically, um, and he understood that it was going to be politically smart for him um, if he and his Christian Democrat Union (CDU), the same party that we know from Chancellor Merkel today, um, was going to be able to sort of be a dominant player in that landscape. And of course, in the first free elections in 1990. Um, uh, his party, the CDU, dominated um, across the entire East. So at the beginning, Cole said, we need to find a way to put this together. And the mechanism for that was the two plus four talks. So the two Germanies um, and uh, the four powers. So the United Kingdom, France, the United States, and and the, the then Soviet Union. Um, long process of negotiations uh, throughout 1990 uh, with all of the sort of, uh, you know, reservations that we talked about already. Um, but in the end, uh, again, with the leadership of the United States and with Cole, I think, playing a very, um, a, you know, a calm and level-headed negotiator um, who I think made clear to France and Germany that it wasn't going to go in a dangerous direction. Um, the four powers plus the two German states uh, came to agreement um, uh, on what unification would ultimately look like. What that meant in practice was that East Germany um, would um, vote to recognize the agreement, the two plus four agreement, um, and dissolve itself. Um, and uh, the political institutions that we knew from the Federal Republic um, that were created after the war, largely with American input, um, would in fact become the dominant institutions uh, in the newly re reunified Germany and the, frankly the same institutions that we know today. Gail, in the immediate immediate uh, aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the early years of German reunification, what do you think is something that uh, sort of the main point that, that the layperson today doesn't understand about that period of time? I think what the layperson today doesn't understand about that period is the enormous cost of reunification. Two to three percent of every West German's pay, uh, paycheck was going to unification. The effort was huge. Um, they had schools, roads, infrastructure to rebuild it. It, it was it, it was a huge undertaking. The the, the, the second thing that I that I'll say is that one of the most shocking things is that the East Germans were giving refuge and aid to the Bader-Meinhof and the Red Army faction who were perpetrating horrible, uh, disastrous attacks in West Germany. So I had never heard about this before, but the Bader-Meinhof, uh, also known as the Red Army faction, was a West German far-left terrorist group supported by the uh, East German secret police, the Stasi. They were, they were kidnapping all sorts of industrialists. They, they blew up the uh, chairman of the Deutsche Bank. Um, I, I mean, it, it was terrible what they were doing, and it was, it was a very fearful time. 
um, I will tell you that as um, as the wife of of the American ambassador, when I my son was born in 1987, and um, in Germany, and he was put on the Red Army faction top ten hit list. So um, after my son was born, he received security. Um, therefore, I had security, which I didn't have before. That they were were being um, uh, secured and and based out of East Berlin was, I think, one of the most shocking aspects of the wall coming down. And it speaks to the rot of the East German system. Jan, you mentioned the, the centrality of Chancellor Kohl in sort of balancing the Eastern and Western concerns over uh, uh, reunification. Do you see any parallels now with Chancellor Merkel's role in in balancing the you know the the EU and NATO and uh, their their interest in in Russia's near near abroad? Uh, in all cases and all the time, uh, by virtue of its geostrategic location, that is the role that Germany is always going to play, uh, and so it will either be uh, uh, in the interest of mediating uh, between East and West, or you know if they choose a different path as they have historically fighting East and West, right? Uh, that's, to me, the core question about where Germany goes. Um, so, you know, now very much, you know, somewhat ironically, we have uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel as uh, the inheritor, you know, of what Kohl created. Um, and she was, of course, you know, early on, you know, one of his protégés. Um, you know, the rest of Europe today says, you know, when what happens in Berlin is what matters most and what decisions get made in Berlin matter most. You know, if it's in the Greek crisis, if it's in, uh, if it's on the future of the Euro, if it's on the, the ability of the European union to create a stable border and protect its border, all roads lead back to Berlin. And, uh, you know, in part because she is the remarkably dominant political figure that she is. Um, but in part because of the fact that Germany is in the middle of it all, and you know, it will inevitably be that way. Could you talk a little bit more about Angela Merkel's rise to power? Sure. So, um, you know, I think uh, Chancellor Kohl, um, the the remarkably skilled sort of operational politician that he was, um, understood very early on uh, in the reunification process that he needed uh, faces and voices from the east um, to be part of the the new government, the new federal government, which would run the reunified Germany. Uh, he also understood that he needed, you know, uh, some some gender and geographic diversity uh, in the way that government looked, and uh, he identified her um, uh, out of uh, out of the pool of those who had um, you know, been part of the revolution in the east, um, who had been part of the original protests in the east. Um, you know, in the in, when East Germany was collapsing, it was really the opposition in the Lutheran Church um, that sort of drove at least the public. Uh, persona uh, of the of the revolution and she came out of that background um, she was also um, uh, a staff member um, on the German side at the two plus four talks um, which is another interesting little historical tidbit um, uh, and uh, so he invite eventually uh, invited her to uh, to serve as minister uh, in his in his government so what role did uh, Angela Merkel have in the unified government prior to, to becoming chancellor? Um, she was minister for women and youth um, from 1991 to 1994, and then minister for the environment uh, from 1994 to 1998. Um, and she proved herself to be a star 
Um, and, uh, you know, uh, even then, then, you know, as she is now, uh, very level-headed, very, uh, cautious, very careful, very thoughtful. Um, so not, a, you know, not a lot of evident sort of blatant wear it on your sleeve ambition. Uh, but of course we now know, um, that the ambition was there. And, uh, when the chance, when Chancellor Cole fell into controversy, uh, on a number of sort of financial sca- scandals, and uh, donations to the party uh, uh, for for electoral campaigns. Uh, she, in fact, was the one who stepped in to ultimately make the decision to bring him down, uh, and uh, you know took over the kingdom um, after after the king was gone. Jan, could you just share with us a little bit of the the background on uh, on the creation of the EU and and Germany's role there? So, uh, as World War II was coming to a close, uh, it was clear uh, among the uh, among the Allied powers that uh, there was going to need to be a process, of course, for um, putting a peaceful, uh, stable system together uh, in Europe after the war. And, uh, you know, as it was famously said, a system that would uh, keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Um, I don't know that that's exactly, you know, the way we wanted it to play out. Um, but uh, the beginnings of, of the effort to sort of tie Germany very closely into something broader um, so that it couldn't uh, possibly uh, evolve in the same direction it had before World War One and World War II um, was the European coal and steel community. Um, which was an agreement uh, originally driven by France and Germany um, that would um, address, um, you know, those sort of core foundational resource questions uh, in a uh, in a multilateral way. Um, and of course, the thinking um, from the French at that point was that if you could if you could bring the Germans together into a mutual control of war material. Um, then that would be a mechanism for preventing any sort of rise again. And from the European coal and steel community, um, uh, a number of other uh, steps were taken on a multilateral basis to tie Germany more firmly together into what would ultimately become the European community uh, and then the European Union uh, as we know it today. Mm. You mentioned the European community. For, for those who might be listening who don't know what the European community is, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, you know, it's particularly interesting today as we see the United Kingdom leaving the European Union, um, that uh, even back in the beginning, there were conflicting ideas of what the community was supposed to be about. Uh, And of course, the original idea um, was an economic union um, with probably a great deal uh, less in terms of uh, political integration than we see today. That idea evolved later. Um, But, uh, you know, particularly given the the real uh, sort of uh, economic... uh, a collapse uh, in Europe after the war. Um, I, I think it was clear to the to the leaders of Germany, Konrad Adenauer, um, you know, uh, 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 Italy, uh, de Gasperi, France, Schumann, um, that uh, if Europe was going to recover, um, that it was going to have to be more closely economically integrated uh, to be able to be competitive. And of course, the great driver to that at the beginning, you know, is another American. Uh, engagement, and that was the Marshall Plan. Um, so, you know, I think it's a it's remarkably fitting this year that we celebrate the 70th, 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan and the 60th anniversary of the Rome Treaties, which created the European Community. 
um, you know, it's another lesson that uh, that nothing in this process of European unification and the sort of peaceful, stable evolution of Europe really would have happened without the intervention of the United States or the engagement of the United States. Gail, do you think that 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 um, that self perception, uh, uh, the, the need to be a good citizen, the need to be a good citizen in in Europe, uh, in general, but uh, in in the world in general, not just Europe. Do you think that that perception has has sustained into the present present day German consciousness? I think absolutely it has. You look at the the numbers of refugees over a million that Germany has welcomed, and by the way, they welcomed them without any pre screening. They did not know what they were getting, but they welcomed them. I have visited refugee centers uh, in in and around Berlin, and you know it's remarkable the effort that the Germans are going to 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 welcome uh, refugees, to integrate them, to to educate them, to teach them language capabilities, to teach them other specific job uh, skills that they might require. The effort that's being expended now is a direct result of Germans feeling as though they will always need to be good citizens of the world. And they are um, very reluctant to arm themselves. So that's a, that's a, that's an issue right now because we want them to get to two percent, Germans have been very reluctant to build tanks and aircraft, right. aircraft, um, or, or even ships. So, um, so that is something in the German psyche that they are very reluctant to do. However, they are good peacekeepers um, around the world. They're still in Afghanistan. Um, they, uh, they, they want to. To be partners with us, um, they don't necessarily uh, want to be uh, uh, to be a, a great military power. That I think Germans feel like life right now is perfectly fine, and they don't want to do anything to upset it. Um, you know, they, they have kept out disruptors like Airbnb and Uber. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, the, the thought of disruption makes them very, very fearful. Um, they have a, a really effective social market economy now. And because of that, they don't have a strong populist movement. Um, uh, that's that's in that's inbred, and so you don't see what's happening um, in some of these other European comp- countries happening in in Germany because life is is good and it's safe and it feels secure. There is a great safety net under every person and every worker in Germany. That's a very interesting point that you make about. Um Germany's robust economy sort of insulating them from the the populism that we're seeing resurgent in in Europe today. The I guess in in sort of my my assessment, the two main drivers of this populism that we're seeing are lagging economies uh, and the and the refugees. Uh, quite frankly, uh, so how we we've talked about the the differences with the economy. How has Germany? S- 
how are they dealing with this refugee crisis in a positive way, sort of with a model that other countries can learn from? They're dis- dispersing these centers around um, uh, around Germany, so there's not they're not creating ghettos, and I think that's one of the problems, certainly that France has had. Um, is that they, you know, they they sort of ghettoize these people and put them all together and, and gave them very little uh, social service help. I've been to many, many refugee centers where the, where the children of refugees are attending music classes. They're attending, and of courses are being formed. And, and uh, besides getting a proper uh, education, they're really um, trying to bring some stability and some joy, particularly to children who might be traumatized by what they've been through. And um, uh, and I think that that's a very important aspect of, of climatizing anyone to a new environment is is making sure that traumatized children are are being nurtured and well taken care of. So what I'm sort of hearing is that there's more of a focus on on cu- cultural integration really isn't the right term, but personal integration rather than just here, I know you need shelter, you need food, you need security. Uh, so, you know, here's those things. But there's also you're a human being who is now part of our society. So here's how to engage with our society. Yes, that that uh, that is exactly right. And here are the tools with which to do it. Um, here, your language classes will be from uh, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. And uh, and then you'll you'll if you're a pharmacist or whatever you were in Syria, here's what you would need to, to do to be a pharmacist in Germany. Yeah, and what kind of things have characterized uh, Chancellor Merkel's tenure in office? Germans refer to her as, uh, somewhat affectionately, as Mutti, or Mami. Um, and uh, it's, uh, I think it, it, that name, or that nickname, you know, carries with it a number of things. Uh, you know, she has been the calm, sort of steady, um, provider um, to really you know, an entire generation now of young Germans. Um, again, you know, she was from the East. So I think she has always understood uh, in the newly unified structure uh, that the East has special challenges um, economically, culturally, uh, politically. Um, she, um, she's a committed European um, you know, in a, in a, in a way that Germany has always been, or that the CDU, the, her party, the Christian Democrats have always been since, uh, since the end of the war. Um, I think understanding that the, um, the way to prove to the world that Germany was never again going to do, um, what it had done in world war one and world war two, um, uh, by clearly anchoring Germany into broader EU structures. So, you know, when, when many people were calling for, for Greece to be, uh, excommunicated from the union, um, after the crisis there, you know, she was having none of that. Um, her goal has always been, uh, European unity with Germany in the center. And, uh, you know, from her perspective, what Russia has become, uh, under, you know, the several incarnations of Vladimir Putin, uh, is, uh, is, uh, sad and troubling. Um, you know, she fully understands the level of German economic, uh, 
discourse uh, with Russia, um, but she also isn't going to let that uh, cloud her judgment about, for example, the sanctions regime, uh, which uh, which has been placed on the Russian Federation because of its uh, annexation, illegal annexation of uh, Crimea and uh, incursion into eastern Ukraine. I know that sometimes American conservatives um, view her as weak on the Russians. I think that's just fundamentally false. Um, without the sanctions, without her, I, I think it's 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 easily arguable that without her, there would be no sanctions regime, no EU sanctions regime uh, against the Russians. To what extent do you see the, the Russia issue um, taking a central role in her reelection campaign? Right. So this is the, uh, you know, the 64 million euro question. Um, as we have seen uh, in the work that we do here at IRI in our Beacon Project, uh, as we've seen the French or the, the Russian intervention, the attempted intervention in the uh, in the French elections, uh, as we've seen as we've seen them, you know, engage to greater or lesser degrees in other elections around Europe, in the Netherlands, in uh, you know, we don't know fully about what they may have been doing in the uh, in the referendum campaign in the UK last year, um, but certainly in Germany, um, they have targeted her. They have made her target number one. That messaging has taken a number of lines. Um, you know, one is that because of her, at least in the beginning, relatively lenient policy on mig- on migration and on accepting refugees, that she had somehow fundamentally uh, put Germany's security at threat. Um, and you'll remember the. The, uh, the terrorist attack on the Christmas market in Berlin on December 19th of uh, last year. Um, I think many people at that point thought that, you know, it was going to be the beginning of the end of her politically um, because that narrative that the Russians had begun to sell, that, that, that she had brought terrorists into Germany with the, with the migration, um, you know, was, was seeming to become reality. Uh, but, you know, she's, um, she's a survivor. And um, the Russians, I think, have not been able to make that narrative stick. Uh, they're certainly going to continue to try as Germany goes to elections in September, on September 24th. But, you know, there have already been three major state elections in Germany this year, and her party has won every single one of them. Um, two, uh, in a case of, of being in the opposition and ultimately bringing down the SPD-led government. That doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, her political star is, um, is, uh, is remarkably still rising. Uh, and uh, I think the Russians are going to walk away from September very, very, very frustrated. And you know what? Who can argue against a very robust economy? Um, it's it's hard to to, to 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 kick someone out when when you when when things are going really well. I mean, what, what we Americans don't understand is that Germans get a six week vacation, they get one year off, paid for by the state when they have a baby. Um, I mean, it's it's a very, as I said, the safety net in Germany is 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 a very thoughtful one. It's an expensive one, um, but uh, but they're making it. They they've made it work, and uh, you don't see vast wealth and vast poverty in Germany. Um, you see a sustained and a sustainable middle class, a real middle class. And um, so I, um, you know, I argue to my American friends that, you know, life is, is pretty good in Germany. And, um, and there are lessons to be learned from it. So we've mentioned the CDU and the uh, SPD. Uh, could you sort of uh, contextualize where those are on the political spectrum. The CDU, Merkel's party, the Christian Democratic Union, Union of Germany, uh, is the big mainline center-right 
political party. Um, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, is the big mainline center-left party. Uh, the CDU comes out of a, uh, a largely Catholic background, um, you know, conservative Catholic voters. Uh, it used to be called the center party. Interestingly, all the German political parties have a color associated with them. Uh, and black is the one associated with the CDU. And the reason for that is because it came out of this Catholic background. And Catholic priests wear black. Right. Um, and they have, since the war at least, uh, been a, uh, a uh, you know, sort of viewed as the, 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 the pro-socialist market, social market economy um, party, the small business party, the party of agriculture, um, you know, the party of uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, um, the SPD is, uh, is uh, essentially a labor party. Um, akin to the Labour Party in the UK. Uh, it was formed by the trade union movements um, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, has always been, uh, you know, has always sort of put itself on the scale as a protector of workers' rights, of protecting state industry, um, making sure that, that the, the, the working class, you know, had stability and security. Um, it is typically strongest in the cities, you know, and, uh, and, and was strongest in the industrial parts of the country. But as the German economy has changed, like all the rest, you know, there aren't that many industrial jobs left anymore. And I think, you know, as we look forward and you see it across Europe, the mainline social Democrat parties like the German SPD, unless they recreate themselves, I think are done. Um, there's just no more uh, political and demographic base for them to call on anymore. Jan, why should the world care about this upcoming German election? The lesson of the last century and a quarter uh, of world history, of American and European history, is that um, when Europe is at peace uh, and Europe is stable uh, economically, politically, militarily, then America is at peace. Uh, and when it is not, then America is not. We, the United States, uh, invested hundreds of millions of dollars and countless hours uh, and, and, and other resources in after 1989 in ensuring that uh, Central and Eastern Europe was stable, democratic, peaceful, right? George H.W. Bush's vision of Europe whole, free, and at peace. Uh, unimaginable, unimaginable in 1998, um, but already becoming reality by 1990. And I believe, unfortunately, right now, because of American retrenchment, the Russians have moved back into that space. And the ultimate strategic goal for Moscow is to destroy the European Union because they see it as a political and economic example that they can't match. And if they can, to destroy NATO. Um, I think that's much less of a risk. I think the EU is actually low-hanging fruit that they might actually be able to get if we fight back, not necessarily, right? But, um, but what it means is that um, if Russia has its way and can destabilize Europe, the United States is once again uh, put at risk of being drawn into a European conflict. Who is Merkel's challenger in the September elections? Yeah, this, is, uh, this was sort of the, the, the great hope for the socialists uh, in this go-round. Um, so uh, they, uh, earlier this year, the Social Democratic Party brought back um, from Brussels um, a guy named Martin Schulz, uh, who was president of the European Parliament. They, they brought him back to Berlin to be the lead candidate, uh, to be her lead opponent, because he had been out of Germany for a long time, so he was new. 
um, sort of fresh face, um, not necessarily tied to the to the the negative view um, of his party. And when he came back, this was in early in 2017. Uh, when he came back, um, there was what was called the Schultz effect. Um, you know, the SPD went up in the polls um, by maybe even double digits. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody came to think that perhaps the SPD had found a way to, to win. Um, but, uh, as I said, he's, uh, he's now lost these three state elections, uh, and all of a sudden the Schultz effect is gone again. You know, people who cross Angela Merkel don't live long politically. Um, and I think he's going to fall into that very same bin. What are some of the issues that voters care about in Germany? You know, it's um, it's not like uh, not unlike uh, the sort of concerns that voters have across the European Union and even in the U.S. today. Um, you know, the eco- the macroeconomic figure figures are reasonably good, uh, you know, particularly in Germany. But you know, whether that means the kind of economic growth and stability that will let you send your kids, uh, you know, off to an education into a future career that's going to be better than the one you had. I think there are significant concerns about that. The future of the union uh, is going to be a factor uh, because the Brexit negotiations, of course, are on and Merkel is going to take, I hope, I think, uh, a pretty hard line uh, on what the UK's ultimate exit um, from the union will look like. That will all play into it. Uh, but in the end, it will come down to pocketbook questions, just like it does pretty much everywhere, you know, barring some major international crisis. And this is this is where she's strongest. You know, her the the, the public opinion research uh, on her says that she's far and away the uh, the best person to uh, to ensure Germany's economic uh, prosperity and development. And uh, I mean, she's made that the hallmark of her of her chancellorship from the beginning. And nothing about that is going to change between now and September. Gail, what do you think, uh, in addition to providing for their own security or taking the lead on their security, I guess, what are some of the other challenges that are, that are facing Germany in the next five years? Well, they do have a, uh, a sort of a social wel- welfare system that's terribly expensive. Um, they are blessed with very productive workers. So working is in their psyche. Um, and when they work, they work really well. Um, so, uh, so they are blessed with, with, with that sort of order. Um, uh, but keeping this, this socially, uh, uh, sustainable system alive is very expensive. So, um, you know that I think that will be their their biggest challenge. Can they can they keep it alive? Young. So for a a bit of levity um, <laughs> on a very dense subject, um, if if there was to be a uh, a capsule shot off into space uh, to represent humanity, yes, you you get where this is going. What would be put in there to represent Germany? I think you would have to have a remnant piece of the Berlin Wall um, to remind people where it came from. Or if you could safely and securely preserve food, um, <laughs> you'd uh, you'd want to throw in a couple of bratwurst and a beer. Um, you would uh, you'd want a car if it were big enough to be able to do that, a BMW or a or a Mercedes or you know for the for the more plebeian among us, a Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs>
Sam, if our listeners remember nothing else from this episode, what are their three key takeaways? Well, I'd say that unquestionably, number one is that uh, since the European Union's founding, Germany has been a linchpin to its uh, success and that the success of the European Union is in turn essential to a Europe whole and free. The second key takeaway is that Angela Merkel is really a central figure in Germany and in the EU and her unwavering support of the liberal democratic order makes her a target for anti-democratic forces around the world. Third, I would say that even though it was almost 30 years ago, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany uh, serves as a potent symbol that seemingly opposed worldviews can uh, coexist peacefully and reconcile their differences. A big thank you to our guests, Gail Burt of the American Academy in Berlin and IRI's own Jan Suracek. Throughout the episode today, we've heard uh, some great German artists, uh, Dirk Den Monsoon by Tokyo Hotel, 99 Red Balloons by Nena and Goldfinger, and the German National Stacey, could you give us a hint uh, about the next episode's country? This country's coat of arms is a trident, and hidden in this trident is the word freedom written in the country's native language. Well, listeners, if you think you know, leave your answer in our review section, and we'll give you a shout-out in our next episode. Until next time.